Discrimination, harassment and exclusion continue to be an issue for black and minority ethnic staff working in the UK's National Health Service. In an attempt to prioritise workforce equality, from April 2015, NHS organisations have been asked to collect information on this and report their progress. An analysis article in the BMJ looks at the evidence for diversity initiatives from around the world. I'm Navjoit Lada, analysis editor, and I've talked to the authors of the article to discuss how best the NHS can tackle institutional racism. We'll start with some background, and to do that, I spoke to Anise Ismail, Professor of General Practice at the University of Manchester, and Marla Rao, Professor of International Health at Imperial College London. Anise and Marla, um, you mentioned in your paper that there's decades of research that show how much an issue discrimination is for black and minority ethnic staff, which is sad and surprising given that the NHS has such a diverse workforce and obviously its role is caring for patients who themselves may be from a variety of backgrounds. Um, Can you tell us about some of the research and the experiences from the past? You know, I published a paper in the BMJ in 1993, Um, so that's 20 years ago really, um, and it, it showed for the first time that um, uh, ethnic minority doctors were far less likely to get a job uh, compared to um, uh, white doctors. And, and I remember at the time it, it caused such a furore. What, what it did was it, it showed for the first time that a, a lot of the sort of undercurrent that people described and so on was actually happening. And, and I think it, it came, out of, uh, came out of the blue, really, when, when, when suddenly um, a research paper sort of said, look, this is a fact and here is the evidence to prove it. Anise has also carried out the research looking at discrimination in the RCGP exams, where black and minority ethnic doctors seem to have a lower pass rate than their white counterparts. That's all detailed in an earlier podcast we've done and links are available for those who want to hear the details. Anise has been, uh, you know, the leader in, in, in this research. But what subsequent to Anise's research, which highlighted this for the Royal College of GPs exams, is that the Higher Education Funding Council of England has looked further into this and shown that uh, this is consistently the case um, across um, assessments for higher degrees in many medical specialties and even across other, other disciplines. So there's something extremely worrying going on in the, in the, in the background. Marla has been looking at this too, and there is also a disparity in treatment after qualification. She told us about the disparity of pay in the Clinical Excellence Awards. So uh, over 30% of white award holders have at least a level 7 award or higher, when compared with just about 20% of BME award holders. And over 40% of black and minority ethnic um, consultants have just a level 1 or 2 award after many, many years of service. And, and I know that from just talking to consultant colleagues that many um, BME people, especially women, end up saying, well, you know, I've just given up applying because there's really no, no point in it. You know, I'm just going to keep my head down and carry on working for a few more years, but I'm not going to apply for one of these. So if that's the level of reward and recognition, you can imagine what the level of well-being is within the service amongst these people. And the other bit of evidence, which I think is important, comes from uh, Sir Robert Francis's report, Freedom to Speak Up, on whistleblowing, because what that's shown is that there is a a higher proportion of uh, black and minority ethnic respondents who reported um, fear of victimization as a reason for not raising uh, a concern, uh, and also that after raising uh, a concern about uh, the level of service or 
uh, a safety concern, black and minority ethnic staff uh, were more likely to report being victimized by management and by co-workers uh, and, and were less likely to be actually praised for their action. It, it represents, you know, we, we represent uh, nearly a third of the workforce in the NHS. And this is the, the tragedy of it, really, that, that the NHS uh, is so dependent on ethnic minorities, whether they've come from abroad or whether they've come through the UK system. Um, and yet they have failed to make a mark um, at the highest levels of the NHS. And, and, and this is because of systematic discrimination. Uh, despite all these initiatives, uh, we, we, we are ending up with actually regression. Uh, so if you look at the board makeup of, of um, NHS authorities in London, we have regressed, actually. There are far fewer black members now uh, on boards of NHS bodies than there were, say, three or four years ago. If you look at what's happening at, at the high levels of academia, if you look at um, what's happening at um, uh, the management of the NHS and the number of medical directors, we, we seem to have regressed, actually. There are many more examples that unfortunately we don't have time to discuss here. But if you read the analysis online, you'll see the breadth of evidence around the systematic discrimination of black and minority ethnic staff within the NHS. But to pick up on Anise's last point there, here is Yvonne Coghill, who received an OBE for services to healthcare and was a central part of previous attempts to improve representation of black and minority ethnic people in the upper echelons of the NHS. Um, So in 2004, we had the NHS Race Equality Action Plan, which set out to address some of these issues. Yvonne, what were the goals of the plan and to what extent did it achieve them? Okay, so in 2004, um, Sir Nigel Crisp, who was then the chief executive of the NHS, uh, along with the uh, Minister of Health, John Hutton, realized that the black and ethnic minority staff in the NHS were not getting to the most highest levels. At the time, there were only 12 directors of nursing from black and minority ethnic backgrounds. Um, And that caused them some alarm because actually there were something like 450,000 nurses in the NHS. And at that time, probably about 20% of them were from black and minority ethnic backgrounds. And bearing in mind that a lot of black and ethnic minority nurses had been around in the NHS, since the, the 1960s, um, there was a lot of concern about it. When it was launched, everybody had great hopes, and we had great great hopes because it was coming from the very, very top of the office. It was coming from um, Lord Christ. It was coming from ministers. And lots of other things had been tried. Lots of discretionary things had been tried to actually improve um, the numbers of people from black and minority ethnic backgrounds at the most senior levels uh, of the NHS. So that the five um, objectives which were based around staff were that chief executives, um, including the chief executive of the NHS, would actually mentor somebody from a black and minority background, that there would be celebration of, of the work of black and minority ethnic people. We would have a program called the Breaking Through Program, which would uh, look at um, black and minority ethnic um, uh, people could be developed and trained and so on and so forth. Uh, there would be a, a whole scheme mentoring program for black and minority ethnic people across the whole of the, the NHS. There would be an appointment of a senior director um, specifically for black and ethnic minority people. And there would be some sort of panel um, that would look oversee all of that. So that was basically what it was and why it was introduced. Did it work or, or what, what, what happened? <laughs> no, you said there's, you... A, there's, a, there's a question. So some of it did work in that it raised the profile. The profile 
of, of equalities and particularly race equality became higher. People were keen for things to work. I don't. I think what wasn't understood at the time was the complexity and the difficulties inherent in race equality. I, I, I am. In fact, I'm clear that a, a lot of the system wasn't clear about that and what they thought was if you work with black and minority ethnic people make them more like us actually everything's going to be okay because what will happen then is that we can appoint them and um we can all go away and just relax and everything will be okay and of course that that wasn't the case so when nigel left the, the race equality action plan actually it fell apart um people stopped mentoring people from black and minority ethnic backgrounds the money that had been allocated to the program, the, pro, the breaking through program was taken away. Uh, the chap who was the um, director uh, when there was a reorganization, he lost his job um, and the, he wasn't replaced. So because it was a, 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 a discretionary um, program or strategy that had been put in place by the A chief executive that was no longer in the, in the system, um, People thought, well, you know, we've, we've, we've been doing this for three or four years. It hasn't worked. Uh, we might as well do something else. It was, it was disbanded. And um, so the answer to the question is maybe if we left it a little bit longer, bits of it would have worked better. Um, but the fact was that we left it for about three or four years and then we disbanded it, like most things in the NHS. And um, no, it didn't work as well as it could have. David Williams is a professor of public health at the Harvard School of Public Health and a professor of African and African-American studies at Harvard University. He and Naomi Priest, senior research fellow at the Centre of Health Equity at the University of Melbourne, have been looking at where initiatives to improve black and minority ethnic representation have worked and they've had to look outside the healthcare arena. One is in education. Um, I'm a faculty member. I'm particularly interested in what happens at, at universities. The University of Michigan is a, a prominent uh, public uh, national high-quality research university. It implemented um, uh, back in the late 1980s what has been regarded by many in the field as the single most successful diversity initiative by a predominantly white university uh, in the United States. And there are three things that were done in that initiative. One, the president said that, that diversity and excellence were two sides of the coin of what it meant to have um, a, a great university. So one, he, he had a steady drumbeat of information about its importance. Uh, secondly, this is a large university with a medical school and a law school and a business school and an engineering school. So the, it was the second highest ranking official at each of the institution schools was the implementation committee. So it was individuals who could take action at within their institution with the support of, of the, the president. And third, and many would argue most importantly, he allocated 1% of the entire university's budget annually into an escrow account that could only be used for diversity initiatives. So that if, if a department chair, if a unit of the university wanted to pursue diversity initiatives, in fact, there was funding available to do it. Within about four years, the number of black and ethnic minority students at a university doubled. 
under this Michigan mandate that was implemented, the number of minority faculty dramatically increased and the promotion of minority faculty to tenure increased and the promotion of minority faculty to leadership positions within the institution dramatically increased within a 10-year period. That was a program that was implemented in 1988 and the president remained president through about 10 years for a 10-year period of time. Today at the University of Michigan, the minority and black enrollment is half of what it was at the height of this initiative. So it, it's again, it makes the point that, that Yvonne makes without ongoing support and, and attention and, and monitoring um, even a successful initiative, the, the results will not be sustained without keeping our attention on it. Um, another example also comes from Norway where um, they announced a policy just a few years ago as well where corporate boards had to have 40% of the seats on their boards as women. And this was quite controversial at the time. People raised um, a number of different concerns, as we've heard, um, in fact, in relation to the announcement of the mandated um, policy in the NHS, where people were saying, oh, we're not going to have enough people or um, concerns about um, fairness. But what we've actually seen in Norway is now around 35% of seats on boards are actually held by women. Um, it's been very, very successful. And rather than um, there not being sufficient women, they've actually found that a wider range of candidates and actually qualifications beyond the, the more narrow perception of qualification. So women have been recruited with a whole range of different skills and the outcome has been far in, um, greater increase in innovation and also effectiveness of the boards and it hasn't made any difference to the bottom line of organisations at all. So that's one of the, the most substantive um, examples we've, we've seen from the corporate sector. And one thing I would say about the Norway example too is that companies, again, it was a mandatory, we've seen over and over again that it needs to be mandatory, that voluntary action doesn't um, make the difference. So these corporate boards were actually going to be delisted if they didn't achieve these. And so again, tying it to this mandatory monitoring over time is, is a key factor for success. Right. Um, the National Football League in the United States, this is not soccer, but American football, um, had a voluntary initiative to increase um, the number of, of black and ethnic minority coaches Despite the fact that the majority of players in the in the in the league are black and ethnic minorities, there there had been little success over more than twenty years, and so there was the threat of a lawsuit. And they implemented a plan that was called the Rooney Rule. Rooney was one of the NFL owners who chaired a committee that came up with the plan. And this plan required again a mandate that before a general manager of a team or a coach for a team could be hired a minority candidate had to be interviewed. So it was just the requirement of an interview. And if that was not done, there were severe penalties. One team that didn't follow it or that tried to do a phone call as an interview at the last minute was penalized with, by a million, millions of dollars fine. So it, there were consequences. And within three years, there was dramatic increase in the number of, of coaches and that pattern has continued. And what about the issue about ensuring the kind of longevity of the of any policy or intervention? Because it seems that in some of the examples that we've heard, it seems that a particularly motivated individual seems the one who's kind of pushing it through. 
Yeah, I, I would add, yes, that, that mandates are necessary, but not sufficient. Um, because in addition to the mandate itself, a mandate does not ensure, for example, within the NHS, that all NHS uh, BME staff will feel respected, will feel valued, will, will feel engaged, will, will feel that their, their voice will be listened to. So I think the mandate is a start, but there, there needs to be organizational transformation um, and organizational supports that that clearly um, provide interpersonal support that that eliminates uh, or reduces the levels of discrimination um, that that and bullying that that many uh, BME staff uh, experience. So I, I think there's there's other supportive actions necessary, and then. Two, I think your question is, is absolutely on point, that we need to think of ways in which this can be institutionalized. Right. Um, I think many times with initial success, uh, many people perceive the success to be actually greater than it is, and, mm -hmm. and we relax that the problem is solved, and and we turn our attention to other things. So, so that kind of ongoing uh, support and, and finding ways to institutionalize the policies right. so that it doesn't depend on who is in, in, in office mm. and, and leadership at a given moment Absolutely. in time is yeah. crucial. And if I can add to that, in a way that the comments that, that were made about um, why the race equality plan um, didn't work and so on is, is partly also because there's always been this sort of feeling, well, we'll just be gentle about it and we're all professionals and we really love each other and just a bit of you know, nudging and pushing will sort this out, really. And I think um, it's come to the point where um, many of us have argued that unless things are mandated, unless we actually force people and judge people on, on outcomes, not just on, on, on saying nice things and on goodwill, that there won't be any change. So, so one of the important things about the Workforce Race Policy Standard, not only is the mandation, but it's going to be part of the inspection regime of the NHS. That, that is our ambition to try and institute it so that the way you judge an organization is not just against finance, it's not just against um, you know, patient experience, but against also how well you do uh, on, on, on ethnic diversity and, and all the other um, markers that, that the race policy standard will include. Anise mentioned the NHS workforce race equality standard there. This is the latest attempt to tackle race equality across the organization. It consists of a set of standards which organisations have to show improvement against and a toolkit that aims to help these organisations do that. This year, those requirements have been added to the standard NHS contract to make them mandatory. One of the uh, key issues, of course, is convincing uh, the, the current leadership and the current uh, white majority uh, in the NHS that this is actually... Uh, useful and beneficial to the entire country. If people aren't convinced, uh, we'll just go back to where we were before. And I think for the NHS, I'm hoping that, uh, and we all hope, that Simon Stevens and the leadership will look at the evidence that comes from industry. One report is particularly important in this, and that's the uh, McKinsey's analysis Yes. Uh, of the leadership of companies in the U.S., U.K., Canada, and Latin America. And they, they looked at thousands of companies and uh, wrote a report called Diversity Matters and demonstrated uh, in their report that companies in the top quartile of ethnic diversity were, um, were actually 30% more likely to have um, uh, above-median financial returns 
mm-hmm. compared with the industry mean. And, and in fact, the, uh, improving gender diversity only achieved about 15%. Mm-hmm. And so in an era in the NHS, when we really need to be far more innovative, we need to do more for less. But the best way is to put our heads together, irrespective of what our backgrounds are, and, and put it towards a common goal. So uh, we're very much hoping that that kind of evidence uh, will, will uh, demonstrate itself as we go along and, and mandates actually improve uh, the diversity of uh, the leadership of the NHS organisations. My sense and my feeling is that at, at, at this time, there's a real groundswell of, of enthusiasm within the NHS that this might be and this might work this time because we've never tried this before. We've had so many uh, initiatives that have been discretionary that, you know, people can try or not try or maybe do or not do. But this time round, we're looking at making sure that all organisations have to adhere to this um, to the standard. And then on top of that, we also have a strategic advisory group with all the most very, the most senior people in the NHS sitting on the strategic advisory group. So the chairman of arm's length bodies uh, like Public Health England, like Health Education England, um, you know, Leadership Academy and so on, NHS England, are sitting on the um, strategic advisory group for the Workforce Race Equality Standard. And that means that they're going to be responsible for making sure that there's a system-wide approach and holding all these organizations to account in terms of making sure that they do what they need to do. So I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit more hopeful now that we might actually see some change for staff in the, um, uh, in the NHS and as a consequence of that, have um, better outcomes for our patients. You've been listening to Anise Ishmael, Marla Rao, Yvonne Coghill, David Williams and Naomi Priest discuss how to tackle racism in the NHS. To read more about the new NHS Workforce Race Equality Standard and some of the evidence that underpins the points they've made today, their full analysis, Promoting Equality for Ethnic Minority NHS Staff, What Works, is available on the bmj.com.